Good morning. Please join me in reading our text this morning. My name is Amanda. Let's stand together and read our reverse passage. 1 Kings 18. At the usual time for the offering, the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Be with you today. It's been, like I said to the kiddos, um, three weeks, I think, since I've had the privilege of, of preaching in this space and doing kids' time, but it is always a delight um, to be with you. If you're new here today, can I just say thank you so much for joining us in worship? Uh, we're grateful that you took uh, the time to worship with us today. We know it's no small thing. And we would love to know that you are with us, and you can do that by going to fbcsa.org slash connect. You can do that right now on your device, but we would love to say thank you for coming and connect with you at a later time. But also, we want to encourage you to continue to give through this church family to be a part of what God is doing. a part of God's design uh, for mothers uh, to be a part of what he is doing in all the earth. So be sure to honor your mom today. But in, in honor of moms today, watch this little video about a ministry in our church family. Uh, this morning, um, but that's okay. Uh, one-to-one Ministries is a, a, a mother's mentorship ministry where we partner um, experienced moms with younger moms, and uh, just a great way to shepherd younger moms uh, in that role of motherhood. We have the, the kiosk in the back if you want more information. Please go back and check that out. If you can volunteer to be a part of that ministry, certainly Um, let them know that you would love to be a part of that ministry. 
Um, also, we have a Moms and Sons event. <laughs> I can't be a part of that. That's okay. That's all right. A Moms and Son event, a date night event. Put that on your calendars, Moms and Sons. It'll be an awesome, awesome event to be a part of. Uh, Pentecost Sunday is coming. That's the last Sunday of this month. And we are all gathering for worship in the main sanctuary. So we will not be gathering in here. And we will be gathering with all of our different congregations, our Spanish congregation, um, some of our Burmese congregations. We're going to be all in one space together, worshiping um, God with one another. I can't wait for so that children thrive. We meet for one hour once a month, and I share scripture and lessons on parenting and child development. We need more ladies to share the love of Jesus with moms and their babies in our community. One by One, for which I'm the coordinator here at our church, provides the training and materials. Please visit our information table today in the lobby or contact Women's Ministries to learn how you can be involved. Let them know. But again, Pentecost Sunday is coming. Worship together. There will be baptisms in the courtyard, which um, Byron and I were talking a little before the service. There might be someone in this room who is a follower of Jesus but has not made that profession by baptism. And this would be your opportunity, not the only one, but a great opportunity to be baptized on Pentecost Sunday with, with the church, the whole church there. So if that is you, if you are a follower of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus and who he is and what he's done and his death and resurrection, and but you have yet to be baptized, will you let me know immediately following the service? Uh, we would love for you to have the opportunity to make that public profession that I am all in and following Jesus, loving him and believing him every day of my life. So please let me know about that. Um, we also have senior Bibles every year for our graduating seniors, and our church family has a beautiful role in letting them know our favorite verses that might encourage them in their years through college, especially that initial year. So we give them, during their graduation um, ceremony here, where we honor them as graduates, that Bible that has all these highlighted verses in it. And we just want to know your most encouraging or favorite verse. And so um, you can, there's actually a place where you can fill that out. You just put your name down and write the verse that you want highlighted. And then we this week, someone else this week will do all the work for you. But what a simple, wonderful way to encourage seniors uh, in fact, next week is Senior Recognition Sunday when we'll be giving them those Bibles. Lastly, we'll be commissioning our Dominican Republic mission team immediately following the worship service in Unity Hall. Not to mention, we have our Mother's Day photo extravaganza. It's not really a booth, but background, backdrop. Get a picture, 
with mom and family, and then also let's pray for the DR team that's going out. Oh, that's an awful lot, isn't it? Awful lot. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace towards us, even now, especially now, as we go to your word. And so, Lord, as we pray together almost every week, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and the feet to put your word to action in our life. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, as you can tell, we are in a well-known story. If you have kind of grown up in the life of the church, you've probably heard this story a lot uh, growing up. If you didn't grow up in the life of the church, this is a pretty awesome story, and you captured some of that uh, during our kids' time this morning. There is nothing more dramatic, perhaps, or more climactic, maybe save the resurrection of Jesus, uh, then this story with Elijah and the prophet Mount Carmel. It's an incredible, climactic, dramatic, dramatic conclusion or partial conclusion to what Elijah was trying to communicate to the people, in particular to King Ahab. So this morning, I want to do a few things. But firstly, um, I want to remind you of two things. There are two things to remember this morning. If you have a worship guide, you can follow along with me. So there are two things to remember. There are two things that I really want you to know. Two responses that we can have to this story as individuals and then as his church. And so follow along with me as we do that together. The first thing that I want to remind us of is that God is committed to fulfilling his original command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Remember from the very beginning, he said, listen, I made you in my image. Now be fruitful, multiply, and I want you to rule over all the earth as my representatives. He's still committed to that. And ultimately, he fulfills that in Jesus Christ and his church, we become those restored, remade image bearers in all the earth. The second thing I want you to remind you of, which is connected to the first, is God's covenant in particular with King David. Now, we were with King David the past three weeks, but God made a covenant with King David, and he said, David, I promise you, because you're a man after my own heart, and I have chosen you to be the real first king and to bring unity to my people, that through your line, eventually there will come a messianic king, and this messianic king will bring, finally will bring peace and justice and righteousness over all the earth. And he won't just reign over Israel and Judah, he will reign over every single nation. We need to remember those two things. In all of the stories that we find in the Old and New Testament are a partial or total fulfillment of those two things that I'm calling you to remember today. God's commitment to fulfill his original command and God's promise of a messianic king through his line. Now, there are two things that I really want you to know out of this story in 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 
30 through 39. The first is, is that this story on Mount Carmel is a story about a king. Not surprising, um, 1 Kings and 2 Kings is all about the kings. Almost every chapter or even two or three times within a chapter, it introduces us to a, a new king and it tells us who this king is and who his father was and how long he reigned and what kind of king he was. Was he a good king or a bad king? The book of Kings is about kings. It's about that lineage um, that God promised through David that ultimately will be fulfilled in the messianic king, Jesus. But we have these, these portraits of these kings, one of which was Ahab. Ahab. And he was not a cool king. I want to read to you 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. This story has everything and a lot to do with this king. But let me describe to you Ahab. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. And let me just pause for a moment. A little history lesson. You have Saul, that was the first king of, of the people of Israel. David then was the chosen king, man after God's own heart. Solomon was the king after David. And David ushered in unity among all 12 tribes. It was one nation. Now, Solomon expanded that kingdom. In fact, some scholars would say by the end of Solomon's reign, he was more like a pharaoh than the kind of king that God would have wanted him to be. He amassed an enormous amount of wealth, had tons of slaves. He started off well, but didn't end well. But at least the, the kingdom was united. But it was after Solomon's reign that the kingdom, the peep, the 12 tribes, went from one kingdom to two. It split in two. It was a mess. And so you had the northern kingdom that Ahab was king of, and you had the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The capital of that kingdom was Samaria. The southern kingdom was called Judah, and the capital of that kingdom was called Jerusalem. That's where the temple was that Solomon built. And so Ahab is the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. He's in the capital city, Samaria, and he is uh, reigned in Samaria 22 years. Verse 30, but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. So he didn't even marry within the tribes of Israel. And he began to bow down in worship of Baal. Verse 32. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal and Samaria. Well, Jerusalem has its temple. I'm going to build my temple in Samaria, but not to the one true God, but to Baal, who wasn't really a God at all, by the way. Verse 33. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did, he did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. He was a bad, bad dude. But Ahab is in the line of King David. He's a hundred years removed from that covenant promise between God and David, but he is an absolute disaster. Not to mention... 
If you go back to chapter 18, verse 30, something that stood out to me, just the first two words in my translation reads, then Elijah called to the people. The kings of Israel, or even the kings of Judah, they were to be men of God that would lead the people in worshiping God. But he wasn't doing it. Elijah's doing it here. But he had completely failed God's role that he had given him to lead the people into righteousness and justice and to worship the one true God and to follow God all of their days as a nation. Not to mention, he, he walked them right into blatant idolatry and immorality. Odds are, early on in Israel, idolatry probably happened something like this. They came into Canaan, even though they were tasked to getting rid of all the idolatrous nations around them. Some of them stuck around. And it's not surprising that those Canaanite nations worshipped other gods based upon their own needs. Well, we need, we need rain, so let's pray to the rain god. We need uh, whatever, you name it, let's pray to that kind of god. And in Canaan, there was this regional god named Baal who was kind of like the king of the weather, god of the weather. And Baal, who was manifested out of their own fear and imagination and need, Baal was the rain guy. He was the one that would deliver the rain so that their harvest could be fruitful. And so you can imagine the Israelites, the 12 tribes, come into the land of Canaan. They have their God that brought them out of Egypt, and they have their own needs, right? They have to have grow their own crops. And so they're like, well, you know, I mean, our God rescued, rescued us out of Egypt. He provided us food for those 40 years, but is he going to bring the rain? We don't know. Maybe we should just add Baal. And so they added Baal because they wanted to cover their bases. Let's worship. We'll just worship our God, but then we're going to add Baal just to make sure we get what we need. And over time, they completely forgot about the one who had rescued them out of Egypt and provided for them for 40 years and promised them to fight all their battles and meet all their needs and decided to worship this Baal God, because that's what everyone else was doing. That's what happened. That was, that's the way of idolatry, and Ahab fully embraced that. Instead of leading the people back to God, he led them full on into that idolatry and brazen immorality. They had forgotten everything that God had done, much less the word that he had given them through the law. Israel was where it was, and Judah, much like it, because of godless leadership. This story is about a king's godless leadership and the result that it had among the people, in this case, the people of Israel. The other thing that I want you to know out of this story is this is also a story of a prophet. Prophet Elijah He's an incredible, incredible dude. Um, now, the prophet's job is not to tell the future. When we see that word, we think of future teller. He can predict the future. But the primary role of, of, of prophet, which the, the kiddos got right, which is he was to be the mouthpiece of God. Um, he was to deliver messages to the king or the people. 
And he was to draw their attention back to God, to call them back. Um, He also was to remind them of the covenant promises. Remember, God made a covenant with you. You're supposed to obey the things he's commanded you to do. You've forgotten all of that. And so the prophet was to remind them, remember who God is, and remember you're supposed to do what he's called you to do. You're supposed to be his people, and he's to be your God. That's the role of the prophet. Now, Elijah is a superstar prophet in the Bible. I mean, he is a rock star prophet in the scriptures. In fact, I would say maybe, I mean, Moses is up there, but we don't often think of Moses as a prophet. He is, but I mean, Elijah was the big dog prophet for a variety of reasons. Um, Pretty incredible guy. Um, He did seven different miracles that are recorded in 1 Kings. He even brought a boy back to life. Um, And of course we know, rather than Elijah having a natural death, y'all remember what happened to Elijah? He get whisked away. God took him away in a fiery chariot because Man, God just loved this dude, this prophet, and he said, you're not gonna die. I'm gonna whisk you away. He's a rock star prophet. If that's not enough, Elijah, who shows up with Jesus on, on the top of that mountain, who shows up with Jesus when he's transfigured? Moses and? He's a rock star prophet. I mean, he's a big deal. But his job was to call attention to the one true God and say, follow him like you promised you would. And that's exactly what he did. He puts Ahab on notice. It doesn't start in chapter 18. It actually starts in chapter 17 when we're first introduced to Elijah. This is um, chapter 17, verse one. Now Elijah, that's the first time we hear of him, who is from Tish and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word, because I'm a prophet of the Lord. So Ahab's worship of Baal and his godless leadership is put on notice three years before Mount Carmel. It's pretty incredible. He says, by the way, don't you worship the God of the weather? Well, I'm gonna hear, I'm gonna tell you right now that there's not gonna be one drop of rain until I declare there is. You wanna know who the God of the weather is? Started way back before Mount Carmel ever happened. He put Ahab on notice. A direct challenge to the worship of Baal. Eventually, Elijah's game plan was to challenge the God of Baal to a duel. By the way, Baal is not a real God at all. But he he challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel, challenges Baal to a duel so as to draw the people's attention to the only God, the true God, the no other God but the God of Israel and Judah God, the one who rescued them out of Egypt, the one who made the heavens and the earth. That's his job. And so he challenges them to a duel. Now, I've said this multiple times, even beginning in the kids' sermon, that Baal is no God at all. But Baal was a manifestation out of the hearts of people because of their fear and need and desires. We make gods out of our fear and desires. And so you had the the people of the earth, men and women, creating these gods, 
We need rain. Let's pray to the God of the rain. I, I want a healthy sex life, so let's pray to the God of whatever. You know, you know we just create these gods. Um, and Baal was no different, a manifestation of their fears and desires. Now, a, a contemporary author, Neil Gaiman, um, I've read this book. I don't necessarily recommend it. It's called American Gods. Um, but he talks about this system of gods and the gods in his book are born out of the need and fear of men and women. They come into existence and out of fear and need of men. And then, then as they worship these gods, they give more and more power to these gods. And the, the more power and the more worship they give to these gods, the more dominion that these gods that they've created for themselves have lordship over them. So they become ruled. They kind of hand themselves over to these gods over time, and they empower these gods by their own devotion and worship. But that's really kind of how things happen. That's how we fashion idols. Idolatry is a manifestation of our own hearts. Our hearts are stone or a stone quarry fashioning idols left and right. We just pump them out, chiseling away. You name it, wealth, security, power and influence, our sexuality. Really, an idol is, is whatever or whomever we turn to for security and fulfillment. Y'all know what this feels like. Um, gosh, the beginning, the pay period, my heart's at ease. Ever felt that before? <sighs> Feel secure. But where does it go at the end? <sighs> Get anxious. Where does, where does my fulfillment and security come from when I turn, my heart turns like that? Not to the Lord. And that's what Baal, I mean, Elijah's trying to say, listen, people, can I draw your attention back to your greatest security and fulfillment in all of life to the one true God, not the one you've crafted out of your own heart that ends up enslaving you? Not to mention Baal and all these other regional gods were in need of the people. Listen, I grew up in West Africa. I grew up in West Africa where idolatry and the worship of trees and everything was really prevalent. And we would go into a village and there would be this little plate in front of this idol right next to this big tree. And there'd be a big ribbon around this giant tree. And they have to feed these idols that are made of clay. And Elijah says, can I just remind you God has no need from you. He provides for you. Will you worship? Will you, will you give your heart to the, the real God? Not something that you've just manifested out of your own heart that leads to death and slavery. The truth is that we, and even in the church, we tend to cover our bases too, don't we? We give our allegiance to God through Christ. 
And then we find ourselves, well, let me just cover my bases and put my, maybe, it's, maybe I should find familiar in this thing too. I mean, that's a war that I wage in my own heart, but we have the tendency, I mean, to do the same thing. Let's just, we don't think it, we don't say it out loud, but we end up giving ourselves to divided allegiances and loyalties, don't we? I'm gonna find fulfillment here and here and here. And the whole time, the Lord says, you know what, I'll, if you seek first the kingdom of God, I'm, I'll meet all your needs. I'm the one that provides for you. It's not that I, I know you need those things, but don't make those things into gods. But that's us, isn't it? And if we look at Ahab and even Elijah, listen, it wasn't long. I mean, the people's response, the people's response to Elijah and the fire coming down from heaven. I mean, it was extraordinary, right? I mean, God came through. And Elijah was confident that God was gonna come through and, and the people saw God and that fire come down from heaven and consume everything. I love how the, the scripture says even, even the dust, it consumed the dust around the altar. Every single thing. Um, the people said, yeah, we're all in. Yeah, he's the one true God, but it didn't take long before they just went back to where they were, maybe a handful of months, a few years, but the people ended up because their hearts is a stone quarry of, it was an idol factory. It's where their hearts go, and that's where our hearts tend to go as well. But here's the point. No earthly king or no prophet can do really anything about your heart Can't do anything about it, much less left to ourselves. We can't do anything about our stone cold hearts and our idolatry. We can fight all day long, but left to ourselves, our hearts stay hard as rocks. The, uh, one of my favorite hymns Y'all know this line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That is us. That's us. So that leads me to two ways to respond out of this story. Two ways to respond. Do you want a new heart? For those of you who know Christ, who have believed in Jesus as the Son of God, who died for your sin and rose victorious over sin and death, those of you who know Christ, know this to be true, do you want a new heart? Then you must believe in and love and follow a brand new king, that messianic king that was promised through the line of David, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can, can change our hearts from the idol-making quarries that they are into hearts of flesh. 
2 Corinthians 5.17. This is what Paul says about people who put their faith in Jesus. This means that everyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. And I'll add, with a new heart. The old life, the old heart is gone and a new life has become, begun. Revelation 21.5. What does Jesus say at the consummation of all things, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, he says, behold, I have made all things new. And what he means by that is I have, I have fashioned new hearts among my people that never again will make idols, but will love and follow the one true God. Will love and follow me. Man, the only way we can have a brand new heart that's on its way to complete restoration is Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, it's like trying to push a train uphill. You get crushed over and over and over again. You might have a season where like, I feel like I'm getting somewhere with my heart and boom. And Jesus says, can I do all the work for you? Do you want to know God? Do you want to have fellowship with God? Then come to Jesus, the rescuer of your heart. Jesus said in John 17, three, I quote this verse awesome, often because it, Jesus wants to shape for us what all of life is about. And he says, you wanna know what eternal life is all about. Eternal life is about knowing the one true God and the one whom he has sent. Jesus, do you want to have fellowship with God? Do you want a brand new heart? Then come to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. Love Jesus. Follow a new King Jesus. Romans 10, 9 says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what, this is what happens when we come to faith in Christ. By grace, by the work that he achieved on the cross and dying for our sin, rising from the dead, victorious over sin and death, our sin is forgiven. Our past sin, our present sin, and our future sin, which is a staggering thought. And we can come to know God and have fellowship with God without fear of judgment because we're in Christ. That's why the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 10, he says, listen, can I tell you, we have this confession about Jesus of who he is and what he's done so that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We don't have to worry about the hammer of God anymore because Jesus received the wrath of God. And so in the midst of our deepest struggle, even with our struggle in idolatry as a believer, which we still wrestle with, we come to him in those moments of those moments of idol making in our heart and we say, Lord, I need your grace right now in this moment to overcome and have victory over this idolatry in my heart. You wanna know what the Lord says? I'm gonna meet your need. Just as I promised, by grace through my son Jesus, you have already been forgiven for that sin. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be renovating your heart. It's kind of like... Um, uh, Y'all know the Last Supper painting? In a moment, we're gonna get to the Lord's Supper. But the Last Supper painting by da Vinci, it's a fresco, it was painted in this, it was commissioned in 1495, completed in 1498 by da Vinci. 
It's beautiful. We don't know exactly all that it looked like when it was finished originally, but over the years, you know, uh, hundreds of years, it went into decay and just stuff, dust. Other people were trying to renovate it, and so they added new paint. It was just a mess when they first found it. And it took them years, about 20 years. They completed it in 1999, I believe, uh, a 20-year restoration process. That's what, it, that's what it's like as a follower of Jesus. He's saying, okay, I'm gonna take your idolatrous heart. You've worshiped all these other things, but I want you to know that I have forgiven all of your idolatry. But now, between the time I come back, I'm going to begin renovating and restoring the original image, the heart you were supposed to have. He chips away and he scrapes off so he can get back to that original, beautiful image that you were created in to have fellowship with God without barrier. But all that's done because of Jesus, believing in who he is and what he's done and what he will do and the promises that he has by God's grace through Christ, we are forgiven and we are renovated. Do you know that, Jesus? Have you put your faith in that Jesus? I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that because you don't have to wait on me. I'm... I'm not some priest that you have to come through and wait on me to tell you something. It's all right here in the word of God. Isn't that great? You can come to the Lord Christ anytime you're ready. But the second thing, second way to respond is embracing our own Mount Carmel moments. Now, I mean that as the church. Embracing our own Mount Carmel moments. As Christians, if, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are, we are given front row seats. No, we're not, not front row seats. We are in the ring. We are in the ring to see the display of God's glory that is calling people's attention back to God. See this glorious God. Know this glorious God. We can have our own Mount Carmel moments and be right in the middle of it. Jesus' life was one huge Mount Carmel moment after another, right? I mean, ultimately with his resurrection from the dead, huge Mount Carmel moment, 500 plus people got to see the risen Jesus. Huge, but his whole life, I, I was looking through the New Testament this week in Matthew 15, 29, 31. Listen to this. This is just 31. This is after he's healed people all day long. And it says this, the crowd was amazed. Sounds like Mount Carmel, doesn't it? The crowd was amazed. Those who hadn't been able to speak were talking. The crippled were made well. The lame were walking and the blind could see again. And they praised the God of Israel. That's exactly how they responded when the fire came down from heaven on Mount Carmel. They praised the God of Israel. Jesus' was, life was full of Mount Carmel moments with the same response. Now get this, in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, listen to this. This is how Jesus prays for the church. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, the 11, right? But also for all who will ever believe in me through their message, that's us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, 
and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. He's talking about the church all over the world. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. This is what Jesus is saying. I'm giving them the glory that you have given me, that when they love one another and serve and bless the world by speaking my gospel and bringing healing to those around them, the people will see my glory and will know that you sent me. The church is in the ring. We're not just in the front row seats. We are in the ring on a Mount Carmel moment. Will we be that kind of church? Those kind of individuals. Will we trust God? Will we join him in what he is doing Will we allow Jesus to use the church to draw humanity's attention back to God to see his glory? My question for us, for you, I have two. If you need to put your faith in Jesus to know forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future, to walk in security, In God's love and grace, will you trust in Jesus today and be baptized on the 28th? Will you do that in church? Will we just cover our bases and just worship other gods along with the God that we come and hang out with or say we do on Sunday mornings or during Bible study? Are we going to be all in? Say, I don't want to be just about my agenda, my schedule, uh, my places of security. I want you to be my security, and I want to be a part of your kingdom, what you're doing. I want to be a part of blessing the people around me so that they can know the one true God and the one whom you have sent, Jesus. Will we be that kind of church? In a moment, I'm going to pray. And we're gonna transition into the Lord's Supper where we celebrate the idolatry, smashing, heart-changing event of Jesus' death on the cross. And also, I wanna challenge you to respond today. Respond to faith in Jesus for the first time. We'll give you the opportunity, but let me pray. Father, Lord, we're grateful for your word that captured these incredible stories of your faithfulness and your glory. Lord, help us also to be captured by that. And by your grace through Jesus, may we be increasingly transformed. May all of our allegiance be in your son, Jesus. May we love him and follow him and find security and peace in him alone. Lord, help us to remember that today most profoundly as we, as your church in downtown San Antonio, remember through the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.
Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church, and we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support, we need your prayers, and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today.